You're listening to WSUW 91.7 FM, The Edge in Whitewater, Wisconsin. This is Rashkin Report, and I'm Yuri Rashkin. And today we are speaking with Maria Snigavaya, a doctorate student at Columbia University and author of an article that seemed to have caught quite a bit of attention in the last few days, titled, What Explains the Sometimes Obsessive Anti-Americanism of Russian Elites? And Maria, welcome to the program. Uh, thank you very much for the invite, Yuri. My pleasure. Can you explain a little bit in just kind of brief terms what made you inter- what made you feel that this article, this opinion piece was important enough that, that you wanted to spend time, research it and write it? Uh, I have to actually thank Fiona Hill, who is a famous Russia expert at Brookings, who some time ago, when I was visiting guests at Brookings this summer, uh, suggested that uh, there is lack of understanding among the American elites about how important, how much they matter for the Russian ones. And I actually didn't realize it back then, but it's actually uh, true that in Russia, everything that's going on is in that way or in other way related to the United States. I actually remember myself, my first expression, uh, impression uh, when I first came to the United States in 2009 and I was a visiting fellow at Harvard University. I was absolutely confident that there was a huge interest in Russia uh, to, in the United States. Um, as it was uh, in Russia towards the United States. And I was so surprised back then to find out that there was hardly any uh, interest uh, in Russia back then. There were very few research centers, there's almost no events, significant events on Russia at the time. So those two kind of impressions combined influenced this piece. It's it's kind of interesting because Russians tend to have kind of an egocentric view of the world, which is not unlike Americans sometimes, that because in America we also tend to pay seemingly a lot more attention to our importance to the world. But then um, Mm -hmm. Russians leave Russia and go like exactly as you discovered, that maybe people don't care about Russia quite as much as we thought. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think actually realizing that would be a major blow to the Russian people. They would define with everybody else hating them as long as they matter, right? But not being significant at all. That's what a problem is for the people of the previous huge empire, right? The Soviet system that influenced a lot of processes throughout the world. So that, of course, altogether influenced this post-imperial syndrome. Like the, the Russians feel like the country doesn't matter anymore like the uh, nobody cares about russia and the country is unable to influence uh, the process in, in the world and that's how vladimir putin is getting a lot of his support because he's playing precisely towards that inner insecurity of the russians who feel that they don't matter uh, but i just wanted to say that in my opinion uh this obsession with the united states is way uh, higher at the tops of the um uh, of the russian elites meaning at the Kremlin. Uh, And actually, you asked how I felt motivated uh, to write this piece. Mm -hmm. One, uh, like, final... thing that really uh, made me want to do that right now was the recent interview by Leonid Reshetnikov, who is the head of one of the Russian uh, influential think tanks, who actually are 
closely uh, connected to the president's administration at Russia. And he recently uh, gave an interview to one of the Russian uh, popular uh, news, uh, newspapers, where he pretty much described all of the recent history, um, all of the recent Russian history being in this or that way influenced by the U.S. deleterious, you know, intents such as. So, in his opinion, uh, the U.S. has always desired to destroy Russia or the Soviet Union in that way or another. And they succeeded in their early 1990s when the Soviet Union collapsed. And they kind of keep trying to do that now that Russia is strong again under the president of our esteemed Vladimir Putin. And I thought that it was very important to show to the United States what the Russian elites thing how they feel about the US right now because I think it's important and, and it seems that to a reasonable person looking at the situation in Russia you can say that well of course they're gonna point a finger at America because this means that um, Russian defense budgets are going to be bigger but what you're pointing out is that it's far deeper than that yeah and uh, my two key explanations are the background of the current Russian elites and uh, uh, definitely the uh, um, uh, the sense of insecurity that has always been there uh, again in the Russian elites. I just wanted to wanted to point out that not all of Russian elites, in my opinion, are deeply anti-American. So in the early 1990s, when Yeltsin and his more or less liberal team came to power, they actually were really motivated about integrating Russia back into the Euro European civilizations, uh, into the West, so to put it, and back then. Then the relations with the U.S. were relatively good up until actually early 2000s, right? Excluding this small Kosovo episode, uh, probably they were good. The situation changed, in my opinion, when uh, Vladimir Putin came to power, and that is directly linked to his security background. Um, and I talk a lot in my piece about what exactly that security background is and how is that connected to the anti-Americans. So it's important to understand that KGB, uh, who, where Vladimir Putin used to work back in the Soviet Union, uh, were specifically purposefully trained to be anti-American. Because unlike uh, com uh, common uh, Soviet citizens, the KGB uh, officers would be dealing with these deleterious and dangerous Western elements on a daily basis, right? That's the, basically that's the whole point of the work. And hence, they must have been particularly well uh, ideologically programmed. And um, so an example would be the, uh, of the example of this programming would be the so-called Dallas plan. This is a notorious fake, um, uh, faking note composed, allegedly composed by uh, U.S. Uh, General Dallas, which explains how the U.S. is going to penetrate the Soviet Union and basically um, erode its morals and its values with an ultimate goal, of course, to destroy uh, the Soviet Union. And although it was known even back in the Soviet Union that this note was a fake composed, I think, by the Soviets themselves. You still see, so despite that, when you read the memoirs, the biographies all written by uh, the KGB officers, 
they all, like a lot of them, tend to believe that the Dallas plan was true. Or if it wasn't true, it, it definitely had some grains of truth in it, right? There was one um, KGB officer literally saying that although he thought uh, it was not true, he definitely thought that it was the frankest statement of how the Western Special Services plan to achieve their arms aims towards Russia. So I think it's very, very um, illustrative of how exactly the KGB training happened and what kind of views they held. And of course, um, later, as Vladimir Putin was trying to achieve certain goals with regards to the United States, and as he was failing with those goals, such as uh, like prevent NATO expansion or uh, the um, missile uh, controls in Europe, as everything that he was working on kept failing, obviously his anti-Americans was intensified and uh, some kind of probably in uh, predispositions towards this kind of thinking that was already there to begin with. Well, well it's, it's, it's almost like a psychological, you know, like a projection when they, they blame others for something that they themselves are doing. Oh, absolutely. And you can see a lot of that in the Russian elites. So the extent that it has taken by now is really extreme because the, uh, the, the United States and President Obama are blamed in contemporary Russia for literally everything that's been going on domestically and uh, internationally. Right. There's, I mean, um, there's jokes in, in, in social media about whatever happens in Russia, it's Obama's fault. Absolutely, but unfortunately, uh, it's 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 only half a joke and also half a truth. For example, recently, like one of the most notorious example, in uh, Saratov, which is the regional city, uh, one of the uh, parliament members said uh, that a land increase that was discussed at that uh, uh, at that parliament, this tax land increase was particularly inspired by the American imperialism, which is also both a very Soviet rhetoric, like American imperialism, it's a very Soviet kind of use of words, and also, of course, the very thinking itself is completely ridiculous. And uh, we're speaking with Maria Snigavaya. You're listening to WSUW 91.7 FM. Um, Ms. Snigavaya wrote an opinion piece that was recently uh, published and reprinted in uh, Newsweek, originally uh, run by uh, Brookings, I believe. Uh, what explains the sometimes mm -hmm. obsessive anti-Americanism of Russian elites? Maria, I wanted to ask you kind of <clears throat> slightly maybe uh, a question for those less informed, but who are Russian elites at this point? Are, the, uh, are we looking at um, KGB generals or FSB now, you know, the, whatever they've been renamed, or are we looking at oligarchs, or are we looking at the military, or are we looking at Chechens? Who, who are Russian elites at this in 2016? Um, so I would actually narrow down the definition of the elites very much, because the result of Putin's uh, 15 years rule is the fact that very few uh, like actual people have remained at the top of the Kremlin decision making. And um, that means that 
only few very close people selected by Putin tend to influence the decision-making based on how we understand it. So I actually can refer you to the Politburo 2 report that is composed by uh, the company headed by uh, Mr. Minchenka in Russia. And they tend to compose a yearly report about the proximity of uh, different uh, people within uh, Putin circles to Putin himself and uh, to the Kremlin decision-making. And usually it only involves uh, like uh, relatively few people. But at the very top of it, as we know, it is uh, like four to five people who tend to influence all the major decision-making regarding, in particular, the international uh, policy, such as uh, the Ukraine invasion and also the Syria, the recent uh, Syria operation that Russia has engaged itself into. And those people would uh, typically, uh, when uh, people, when other like analysts enumerate the list of those people, uh, typically they would include uh, Sergei Ivanov, Patrushev, Bastrykin, potentially uh, Bortnikov and Serdikov, so the so-called power block that actually influence in that way or another the decision making. Maybe also Shoigu, Sergei Shoigu. So, so we're, spe- so <coughs> so we're speaking that- about people mm-hmm. that have r- risen in the, in the ranks uh, tremendously thanks to their basically close friendship uh, going back with Putin. Absolutely. Those are like people whose loyalty has been uh, tested through throughout the years because Vladimir Putin is not a particularly trusting person. We know that. And he really values loyalty a lot. So he really trusts a lot only to the people who are really close to him. Uh, we also like those other people who rep- represent the so-called economic elites, such as Tim- Gennady Timchenko or Yuri Kovalchuk or Arkady Rosenberg, who actually recently got uh, the shares of Sheremetyev airport in Moscow. Uh, those are economic elites who do not, who are not reported as having a direct influence on the decision making, but they do participate in the in the gains and the profits of the system, and they do um, uh, definitely get a lot of benefits of participating in it. And they do do hold important assets in the Russian economy, which is actually hugely monopolized under the under the Putin's rule. Also, if we talk about the decision making like places within the Russian systems, usually um, uh, you, uh, people would mention the so-called presidential administration that also features in my report, uh, in my article, which is uh, the place where things are done. So the place, the things, things are decided within these narrow Putin circles, but then they delegate it to the presidential administration to in order to uh, be um, um, uh, implemented, and that's. And I mentioned uh, the presidential administration with regards to the think tank, uh, the the Kremlin think tank that uh, I mentioned before. So the difference between so the, the three types of elites that you've mentioned are military, economic, and presidential administration. Presidential administration. Well, presidential administration not, not as much the elites as uh, it is like this place where things get done. The actual, the actual functionaries are the people that are making yeah. this thing right, because it seems like one of the things that in today's Russia, in particular, people don't want to do is to either make decisions or then be held accountable for them. Um, so that's where presidential administration is kind of seems like this almost um, anonymous organ that ends up actually making a lot of these decisions that others don't want to take on. 
exactly yeah and it's kind of of course ridiculous one uh as relatively small uh, institute institution basically gets to uh decide and gets to manage a lot of processes in such a huge uh, country such as russia right where where everything i think and i don't want to deviate too far from our conversation but the the term is uh, manual control and that's how russia apparently is this is their new approach is everything's manually controlled nothing's on you know autopilot or trusted out to the regions as well nothing but big decisions, but everything feels like under manual control from the top through this vertical of power. Exactly. And as we can see, the manual control may not be the most efficient way to do so. Okay. So we are looking at uh, the conspiracy theories that turns out Russian military leadership, at least, if not the economic leadership, but the military leadership seems Mm -hmm. to have completely bought into. how seriously should United States take this? Should they just look at them and go, wow, th- those guys are just crazy. Um, let's let's see who comes next. Or do we need to make sure to build up our nuclear arms defenses because they're crazy and they might launch something? Um, wh- where do you see on the spectrum where should we be? How should United States react to this? Mm-hmm. So, uh, so first of all, I didn't think that uh, certain kind of peaceful friendship would be possible with Russia anytime soon under the current leadership of uh, President Putin. And that's what I wanted to emphasize. And But I'm pretty certain at the same time that in the United States and Washington, people understand it by now, right? But it's also important that, in my opinion, the entire Americanism of the Russian elites is not instrumental. It's not constructed with a particular purpose of, I don't know, achieving certain goals in the relationships with the United States at the moment. I think it is there deeply. Uh, and has a lot to do with this uh, build out, like with the education of the leaders and also with the sense of the insecurity uh, that the Russian elites always feel uh, towards the West uh, because they understand their inability to catch up with the West. And I talk about that quoting uh, Cannon's, George Cannon's beautiful uh, citation on that. Uh, so first of all, no uh, friendship in the near future. And if Russia, if the Russian leaders in the near future will may try to negotiate and like to reestablish certain kind of uh, friendly relations with the United States. I don't think that the Western leads have to, they have to be cautious and don't have to buy off into that. But at the same time, I also wanted to emphasize that Russia hasn't always been hostile towards the United States. It's not like it's one given think that Russia will always there hate in the US. In fact, in the 1990s, as I mentioned, under leadership of different of different people, Russia has been quite um, friendly. And the Russian population alone, per se, does not necessarily hold certain hostile attitudes toward the West. Everything de- depends on the propaganda and whatever, the, what, what is the information that they receive on the state TV channels. Well, and that's, so and that's, my, that's my quest, next question for you is, mm-hmm. do you feel that Russian people hold different views from their leaders? Uh, so in general, and that's my point that I have, been, I have been writing about with regards to other issues such as Syria conflict or Ukraine conflict, in my opinion, the best feature that describes the majority of the Russians is indifference. So it's not like they're fundamentally hostile towards the United States or they necessarily want to fight against uh, Syrians or Ukrainians. It's just they 
they predominantly do not care. And when they are communicated certain information on the state TV channels, they tend to repeat it. And that's how we get all these huge surveys, numbers, supporting Russia's military operations in Syria, for example. Just a month after, later, well, a month before, they actually didn't want Russia to go into Syria at all. So we and so basically Russians Russians uh, do not have any deeply ingrained opinions on the majority of the foreign policy topics, and you can see that if you look at the polls and say if you take the uh, the Russians' attitudes toward the United States, what you see over the last uh, actually twenty five years the uh, huge, huge, really dramatic fluctuations in the swings. I'm sorry, fluctuations in the polls. So literally, they're going from 80% being positive towards the United States towards only 20% being positive towards the United States. That all depends on the uh, propaganda levels. But on average, you see that... Um, about half or more, over half of the Russians are positive towards the United States throughout all this time. Uh, the only uh, periods of negativity usually are related to certain kind of Russia's military operations, such as, for example, in Georgia or in Ukraine. These are when these uh, attitudes sharply moved uh, towards this negative uh, spectrum and uh, negative uh, pull of the axis. But in general, uh, I mean, in general, the Russians' opinions can be shaped, and that depends crucially on who is in power in Russia at the at every moment. And that's unfortunately a regular discussion of how much uh, the Russian people's attitudes depends on their history versus the propaganda versus who is in charge. And uh, so, so you're of the opinion that Russian people's opinions can be fairly easily shaped with propaganda, with what, what what's coming at them from that one or two TV channels that they're exposed to. Absolutely, and it's not only my opinion, but also uh, big Russian sociologists such as Lev Gutkov, for example, who has been making the same point. In fact, in the 1990s, the attitudes toward the U.S. has been very positive uh, among the Russians, over 60% most of the time. Um, is Gutkov, I'm trying to think, is he the deputy of the, the Duma? Or, or is uh, this a different? Who's that? Uh, Gut I'm Gutkov, I'm trying to say. Lev Gutkov is the head of the Russian Levada Center. Oh, that's Levada Center. Is the, this is the opinion center. Forward. How mm -hmm. well? I, that's that's a big different question. But how reliable? You know, because Levada Center at this point, this opinion poll, like um, you know, a, a Gallup or something like that, that we have in the United States, has been practically basis for explaining why Putin is still in power. Because according to their surveys, he has 85, 86 percent approval. Uh, so all of a sudden, this public opinion survey company has incredible influence in the country. That's just amazing. Uh, absolutely. Well, well, I mean, uh, this is a huge separate debate right. on how, uh, in general, polling people's opinion in non-free societies, how reliable is that? Because people can be scared, although the majority of the Russian um, uh, polls and um, studies of Russia which we're trying to understand whether people are really scared, do not reveal them being uh, too scared of actually uh, of showing their true preferences. But there are also a lot of um, 
inconsistency in the surveys because what it really is, as I mentioned before, is actually just a reflection of whatever a, a given person have uh, watched yesterday on the TV. That's they basically that they tend to repeat. The majority of people do not necessarily have deep opinions about like certain big issues. They just don't have don't tend to think about those on a regular basis. All right. So they have been said on TV channels. So we are going to Syria because that's what uh, political moment is requiring us to do, and that's what they are re repeating on uh, when they are asked uh, by polling agency the next day. That does not necessarily mean anything deep. Uh, that's the first thing. And second, uh, first of all, the polls on the United States that I have been uh, quoting, they've been there like since uh, 1990. So if you do not trust the polls like in the last couple of years, you can definitely rely on the polls in the 1990s and early 2000s when the informational situation was relatively free. And back then, once again, I repeat that the attitudes toward the Americans was quite positive in Russia. So majority Russians do not hate the United States at all. In general, they even feel certain closeness because both countries have huge try to influence the world processes like there are certain similarities between us also so so that's part of it second if we talk about vladimir putin's uh, rankings precisely actually um i tend to um, rely uh, on what the independent polling agencies in Russia say, first of all, because there's not much else left for us. And second, because recently you see that uh, the polls have been reflecting the uh, the real dynamics. Uh, so, for example, the Russian approval, the approval of the Russian presidents has been shown by different studies to be closely related to the Russians' subjective well-being uh, index. Right. So if a person feels good economically, they tend to approve of whatever the president is doing. So and the subjective well-being uh, indexes have been relatively stable and high up until earlier the uh, 2015, uh, like up, up, up until mid 2015. Afterwards, the well-being indexes started to decline because Russia is in economic slowdown right now. And guess what? The approval of of Putin and all other state institutions started to decline as well. So there's definitely a certain kind of correlation there. Even though, even if I do believe that much more, many more Russians are unsatisfied with Vladimir Putin's presidency than the uh, polls actually reveal. And this is the so-called, as is frequently described in Russia now, the battle between the TV and the refrigerator. Absolutely. Where, where you, you try to match things up, and, and if there is less in a fridge, then you believe TV a little bit less every day. Um, I also, my, my opinion, I guess, just to kind of add to, to this mix, is that when you have 85% who are saying uh, everything's great and they support Putin, and 15% who say no, to me it's more of a, the more important number is how many people dare to say to this unknown stranger on the phone who's asking their opinions, how many of those people dare to disagree, and the fact that that number goes Absolutely. up is, is almost more important than how many people Absolutely. agree. It's very important. And by the way, you're making precisely uh, the point made by Denis, Denis Volkov, who's the other Levada uh, sociologist, very famous one too. That's precisely what he says. He's saying that approval ratings do not necessarily matter, but what matters is the disapproval one. And the disapproval is 15% of the people, right? And at some point, it reached 25, 30% in 2011, 2012, and I'm pretty certain 
will get their back again soon. So it means that a fourth to a third of the country does not approve, doesn't like what the current president is doing. And one more point that I wanted to make is look at the recent protests uh, to commem commemorate the memory of Boris Nemtsov, the Russian opposition leader who was killed a year ago in Moscow. Uh, it gathered in Moscow about 25-30 thousand people just for peaceful protest, just to say that they remember the person and they disagree with the way uh, things are taking place in Russia right now. So not a single state government organized protest is able to govern as many people. And that tells you something. Uh, it tells you that the opposition uh, gathers really active people with really shaped strong opinions on certain issues that are able to mobilize that are able to go for the protest during a windy you know cold russian winter day and they're able to express themselves and you cannot say it of the majority of the other russians in the country so these people who disapprove of putin they really do matter unlike the majority of other people you're listening to WSUW 91.7 FM, The Edge in Whitewater, Wisconsin. This is Rashkin Report, and I'm your host, Yuri Rashkin, and my guest today is Maria Snigavaya, um, a doctorate student at uh, Columbia University who just recently published a piece in Brookings and has been republished then by Newsweek. Good for them. Um, the title, What Explains the Sometimes Obsessive Anti-Americanism of Russian Elites? Um, Maria, what have you, what has surprised you maybe about the reaction to this piece um you know because i would imagine when things start to run in newsweek you probably hear back from people um you know now that you've done your work the reaction what has uh, what uh, has it made opinion on of you you know oh i kind of you know i've been published a lot so i knew it was going to be popular because well, basically, you as as you publish, you kind of tend to feel this kind of things. But I was, I still was surprised by how popular it was, and most people disagreed with it. I mean, uh, that probably the most people, I'm sorry, agreed with it. That's probably the one most surprising thing. I didn't get a lot of disagreement that I usually get uh, when I publish something. So that means that uh, people actually tended to feel something about the the rational that that was actually uh close to reality how, uh, that was good how much of it do you mm -hmm. feel has to do with the fact that it's presidential election season and it seems like russia is one of the countries that uh, if presidential candidates say anything about foreign policy they're usually kicking russia around and then they're showing how strong they're going to be um, do you, do you feel that Russia is just in a in a difficult place for itself, and as far as American foreign policy is concerned? Yeah, absolutely. But both have to do with Russia's uh, definitely very bold move in Ukraine uh, into the, back in 2014, right? Uh, because Russia did uh, violate all the international laws and. It was really by annexing Crimea, it did something unprecedented for Europe for for the last 50 years. So obviously everybody is concerned about Russia right now. In general, as a Russian expert, I do feel that the interest in Russia has dramatically increased. And that is also reflected in the debates by the, by the U.S. Uh, presidential presidents, where almost all of them except for Donald Trump uh, tend to not like Vladimir Putin a lot, right? And they tend to emphasize that it's important to be to stay strong against his violation of the international law. 
Uh, so I, I think it's just the part of the uh, of the overall dynamics of the U.S.-Russia relations, which, in my opinion, have a lot to do with Russia's transgressions and violations of the international law. So Russia very much earned its place on the on the yeah, I'm afraid on that so. list. Uh, Maria, do you uh, you you saw like you, as you mentioned the twenty five thousand people that uh, came out uh, to express uh, their grief and to acknowledge the importance of Boris Nemtsov? Obviously, those kinds of uh, protests or statements would not be allowed in Soviet Union. So there is a difference between today's Russia and Soviet Union. And overall, it seems that it's that Putin's regime is much better about uh, conducting repressions against individual people versus uh, crowds um, and, and uh, you know, or Chechens, but that's a different conversation. Um, so do you feel that his regime is weak and, the, and is likely to go away in the next, you know, in the foreseeable future? Or do you feel that this is just, you know, clever tactical maneuvering on his part and uh, he could be around for the next 5, 10, I don't know, 15, 20 years? Uh, so, first of all, on the lack of mass repressions as opposed to selective repressions, in my opinion, it's definitely a strength of the system. And in general, that's the track that a lot of this hybrid or like uh, electoral authoritarian systems have taken uh, in the last uh, 10 to 20 years. There's a bunch of good uh, publications on this. Uh, in general, um, recently, dictatorships have realized across all of the world that mass repressions are first of all extremely costly it's really very expensive to have that you know that repression apparatus all these people who perform those uh repressions and also um it's basically a lot of um, expense just to implement those mass repressions and second uh due to more open globalized international environment is no longer it's no longer possible to hide those mass repressions as well from the rest of the world and few countries actually want to be you know left out of the international systems uh, due to the genocide that they implement in their countries at the same time selective repressions uh also tend to achieve the same goals uh, through a smaller uh, amount of costs. Uh, because by just murdering by one uh, person, such as Boris Nemtsov, for example, uh, the regime already achieves, uh, achieves this uh, uh, sentiment of insecurity all across uh, the rest of the country because nobody knows who is coming next. And this very unpredictability, selectivity and repressions creates this so-called self-censorship, especially in our countries, which already have the history, a uh, big, huge history of self-censorship. Uh, and basically, people start censoring themselves and uh, doing everything that mass repressions would have achieved by themselves, right? So I res restrain from publishing certain things in my Russian uh, publication media, Vedomosti, uh, because I'm, I don't know what the reaction of the authorities will be, right? And I don't want the publication to get closed because of what I have published. What I have published, and a lot of people do the same thing. So, you, so you kind of feel this double responsibility. You, you want to censor yourself so that you don't get into trouble, and you don't also want the outlet, the publishing, the media outlet that gave you this opportunity to get into trouble as well. 
Absolutely, and that's a sentiment that's very popular among all the Russians. And as you mentioned, with the polls examples, when you answer to somebody, some unknown persons in the streets question, how do you feel about Vladimir Putin? It's not only you, yourself that you care about, right? It's also your family, etc., etc. With the countries with such horrible history as Russia's, this kind of you know feeling of insecurity is very strong. So basically, the point being with that selective uh, censorship, selective repressions, uh, the regime achieves pretty much the same with the less surprise as the mass repressions would have. Uh, on your other question regarding the sustainability of the system, mm -hmm. uh, it's definitely quite, is quite resilient, precisely through this kind of selective uh, um, uh, repressive, selective repression approach that it's choosing. Uh, and uh, Today's system was also integrated in the international world. It's no longer a planned economy. It's quasi-market economy, which also makes it much more flexible, right? Because uh, you didn't, uh, planned economy was far less sustainable in the long run. So that definitely makes Putin's system more sustainable, although... So, so just to, to catch that point quickly, uh, because uh, Russian government is obligated, uh, has so much less in terms of what it's obligated to provide to its citizens mm -hmm. than the Soviet government accepted as its responsibility as far as, uh, you know, just even food. You know, it's, there's still private sector, mm -hmm. so there's less that Russian government has to do. Therefore, it's more sustainable as a regime. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, that's a brilliant way to put it. Uh, at the same time, as we know, Russia's politics is very unpredictable. Uh, Russian people tend to tolerate for quite a while, but later then suddenly start revolutions, right? So it's really hard to say whether this, for how long uh, the system will be able to model through because these kind of processes are very hard to predict. I wouldn't definitely, I, I don't think it's absolutely sustainable. I think the economic situation is becoming worse and worse, and that has been reflected by by the uh, ratings of dif different state institutions. People tend to get disappointed with contemporary system, and the resentment that was there back in 2011-2012, when huge protests uh, escalated all over the country, uh, I think uh, that that resentment is still there. And uh, it might, again, uh, we might see that exploding if uh, the regime makes one more mistake. So I think the situation is far less stable than it seems. And it's, it's hard to predict which Troy is going to break this camel's back. Um, That's true. To take it back, uh, kind of in conclusion to your uh, piece, if the regime goes, uh, you know, something happens, and we have all these military leaders who are suspecting America of all sorts of evil plans to destroy Russia, uh, what are the chances that there will be some kind of a military development to this internal situation, where rather than say that people are unhappy, like what happened in Ukraine, uh, just do the same thing that Russians did about Ukraine, say this was all done by America, this was Washington DC, State Department at work. Um, and then mm -hmm. does it mean that military gets involved, or do they just kind of look at these, you know, this is what they always believed, but combined with this, perhaps they feel that they can't do anything about it because, you know, Americans have been so successful at destroying Russia and, you know, and there's no value to their fears. And, you know, what do, what do you think? I think the regime will try to uh, sustain itself 
no matter what the price is. So definitely any military escalation is possible. It's possible they'll try to use the, um, uh, the military against their own people. What is unclear to me is how, more, how much the real support the regime has. As I mentioned, they can't even gather uh, as many people as the, the real people, right? As the position brings in, in the streets. They have to pay those people right. uh, very often. So I don't think that regime has a lot of uh, real support behind it and a lot of people who are ready to defend it no matter what. Uh, unlike, say, in Syria where Bashar, Bashar Assad has really strong support from the Alawite minorities uh, who know that uh, in case the Sunni opposition wins, like, their, 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 their life is under threat. So Putin's system is very uh, different. It's actually based on populist um, uh, redistribution of the revenues, certain of the revenues from the oil rent uh, to different groups of the population, and many people remain uh, remained loyal to Putin's system because their well-being kept increasing on him. And uh, what's unclear to me is how likely those groups uh, will be to support. Uh, current Russian elites if the economic situation worsens dramatically. I don't think there will be a lot of people ready to do so. That undermines the resilience of the system. At the same time, I absolutely am confident that these elites, uh, current leadership of Russia will do whatever it takes to stay in power, like these very tiny uh, narrow circles that we have mentioned before. And it's definitely true that we might expect all kind of military escalation by the Russian by the Russian elite. All right. Maria, anything that you, well, in conclusion, what would you like to people to take away from reading this piece? The most important part I wanted to emphasize is that uh, Russia is like it is now, predominantly uh, due to the leadership, the current leadership with its security service background. In general, uh, it's, it's wrong to think that Russia would always be hostile towards the United States no matter what. It definitely will take a lot of effort to change the current Russian track of Russia because a lot of people have this Soviet background and have been brainwashed against the United States. But at the same time, the generations have been changing. And as the 1990s have shown to us, it's definitely poss possible for our two countries to be friends and to collaborate in case the elites are replaced. So I think it's important to, to realize that. Well, thank you so much. Uh, we've been speaking today with Maria Snigavaya uh, from Columbia University, who uh, just wrote an opinion piece that was published all over called What Explains the Sometimes Obsessive Anti-Americanism of Russian Elites. Maria, thank you so much for being on the program. Thank you very much, Yuri. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. And you are listening to Rashkin Report on 91.7 FM, The Edge in Whitewater, Wisconsin. This is Yuri Rashkin.